lying not even a little bit, listener, when I tell you that is Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, nor am I lying when I tell you this is Fangraphs Audio and I'm Carson Sestouli. Hello, welcome to Fangraphs Audio. My guest on the show today is Frankie Pilieri. If that name sounds familiar, it's very likely because you've seen his name around Fangraphs recently. Mr. Pilieri is a new member of our team of prospect mavens, having come to Fangraphs most recently from AOL Fanhouse. However, his credentials don't end there. Perhaps most notably, Frankie Pilieri served as a scout for the Texas Rangers under scouting director Josh Boyd. In what follows, I ask Mr. Pilieri about his path to fangraphs and to the art of prospect mavenry. I ask him to help me with some scouting terms that aren't particularly intuitive. Finally, I encourage Frankie to tell us about some prospects on which he's particularly high, but which may not have such a high ranking uh, either in Baseball America's or Keith Law's or Kevin Goldstein's rankings. It should also come to the listener's attention that Mr. Pilieri comes from an Italian background, making him and Matt Antonelli the only two Italian guests on the show. All of that and so much more on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. It is Fangraphs Audio, and it is with the uh, greatest amount of pleasure, uh, in fact, the greatest amount of pleasure possible, uh, that I introduce uh, to to the listenership uh, my guest. His name is Frankie Pilieri. He's not only currently um, a contributor and prospect maven for uh, for Fangraphs.com. Uh, he's also a, a former scout with uh, the, the Texas Rangers and uh, probably most importantly um, a fellow paisan. Uh, joining us from the Empire State, it is Frankie Pilieri. Frankie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm, I'm well. It, it is Frankie, I guess. Yeah, that's what I've always gone by. And unfortunately, I, you know, my birth name is Francis, but I've kind of gone to uh, with Frankie my whole life. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I like I like that too. It's uh, you have a lot of vowels in your name, and I it typically, uh, you know, for me at least personally, and I think it's probably a truth for the human race. Uh, the more the more vowels there are, you know, relative to consonants in a name, probably the the better the person. I mean, just objectively speaking. Well, I'd agree with that. I, I would have to go with that for sure. Good. Uh, okay. Well, listen, Frankie. Here's what I know about you. I know that. Uh, that you um, have been a sc- you've worked as a scout before uh, for the Texas Rangers, I believe. Mm-hmm. This is the truth. Okay, good. Right. I know that you currently contribute to uh, to Fangraphs as a as a resident prospect maven, uh, along with our, our other capable contributors uh, such as Mark Hewlett and Reed McPhail. Um, and I know that you you were, I believe, writing for uh, AOL Fanhouse. Is that am I lying when I say that? Yep, that's correct. Until the uh, you know the debacle over there. Yep, I was with AOL. Right, right. The big debacle, uh, of course. But here, uh, here's what I here's what I'm interested in, and and um, I mean legitimately interested in, and, and it's good because I don't know, so I can. Uh, so my ignorance isn't feigned, um, and in fact, my ignorance uh, most things isn't feigned, but in this case, it's uh, still not. Um, is is how you got to to where you are right now, and and how you got to um, sort of. Uh, Become interested in prospects and, and to know enough about them um, to write about them and, and uh, you know with some authority. And I guess, I guess where did that start? I and mean, you can go back as far as you need to. Well, it's really kind of gone full circle. Uh, I started out you know way back as a sort of an intern contributing writer on Scout.com, and I did some stuff for FoxSports.com. They kind of gave me my start with that. And you know through that, as a lot of people would know that you know work in the same field, you meet a lot of people. You when I write. Scouting reports on a prospect, you you tend to meet 
people who work in the game and things of that nature. So I got to meet a lot of people that, you know, liked my work and people that had enough influence to get me in the door and tell me that maybe scouting is something that I'd be good at, maybe it was something I should do. So one of those people was Josh Boyd. People, a lot of people know him from his days with Baseball America. And then he went on to be a scout for the Padres, and now he's the director of professional scouting for the Rangers. Josh is a guy who believed in my work, and uh, he thought it's something I could do. So he gave me a chance to, to – I started out, I scouted indie ball for the Rangers as a part-timer. Then they brought me on full-time, and they had me all over the country uh, doing uh, pretty much anything they could assign me to as far as go see a low-A ball pitcher, go check out this uh, Gulf Coast League squad, you know, so I got to do a lot of traveling and saw just about every player you could see in, in about uh, in a full baseball season. And you know, then at that point, I, I've always I've always loved the writing side of it. Even though as much as I love scouting, and I'm so glad I have that background, it's it's the chance to actually tell these tell people about it. it. Sounds like a cheesy thing to say, but it's the chance to be able to actually tell people. That's one thing I would regret when I was scouting. If I'd see a pitcher that no one knew about, and he had this great arm, and he was an unknown. It was kind of unfortunate at times to not be able to say, put up a post and say, hey, look at this guy. This is someone you should know about. Here's a scouting report. So when AOL, when I found out they were looking for a guy to be an analyst type, you know, cover the prospects, do big league analysis, I had to check into it. And it turns out they had a pretty good job for me over there. And I think everyone heard about kind of them selling off the, selling off sports and having sporting news come in and do the sports coverage. But, I can't really regret it, even though it didn't last that long and they decided to go away from sports. It gave me a lot of exposure and get to do some stuff with USA Today, get to do stuff for you guys, and and uh, I'm still making a living. That's all. That's, I can't complain about that. No, uh, not in these tough times, Frankie Pilieri. Not in these tough times. <laughs> uh, yeah. Th- there's a lot to, to work with there. Now, I'm curious, just going back to the beginning, is uh, when you were writing for, for Fox, etc., what sort of stuff were, uh, were you doing back then? More of a... I hate to call it a puff piece, but more puff type pieces. You know, I'd, I'd even, I actually probably started even traditional, in traditional type journalism. I would interview prospects, and uh, but I would, I would do some, I would do some analysis. Obviously, I didn't have, I didn't have the credibility or resume to go with those evaluations back then. People would have to maybe take me with a little bit of grain of salt. Turns out that people did like what I was doing, and I did have a knack for it. But you know, I would, do, I would do scouting reports on guys a little less in depth than I would do now. You know, I would do lists, you know, I actually did a lot of Yankee prospects back then. And, uh, you know, did a lot of list stuff, prospect Q&As, you know, top tools type articles, things like that. But the, I think it's the evaluation stuff that, that stood out for me and people that thought and believed that I could work in scouting. And, you know, that's, that's, that's the advice I would also give to people out there that are looking to get into that. Just show people that you can do that type of stuff. If, if you're out there and you put yourself out there enough and, Show that you have an eye for evaluating players, and you want to work in scouting. It it can happen. You, you know, it's it's interesting when you say that. Um, I'm sort of curious uh, for you what your thoughts on this. Um, you, you you came at it. It seems like originally from more of a, a journalistic perspective, and then you mm-hmm. went more to the you know, and then you ended up on the organizational side, right? Where you know where right. you're actually giving real information to uh, to Josh Boyd and the in the Texas Rangers. I'm curious as to as as you were going along that path, the sort of tension between having uh, between making uh, confident claims about players, you know, like uh, you know, like a, a, a player's projectability, for example, and what he might look like at the major league level, and 
the confidence or the, the authority of your claims versus also having a sense of, I guess, uh, humility while also making those claims, especially before you got into the Rangers, you know, like uh, there are obviously people who spend a lot of time doing this and, and um, I, you know, I don't claim to know everything about the scouting community, but I could sense that there'd be like, oh, he's an outsider. So I'm wondering like how that tension's worked for you and maybe how it's changed as you've gone in and out of professional organizations. I think you make a good point. I think you do have to come at it with a, a certain amount of humility, and I think even I think even an experienced guy has to realize you can be wrong. I mean, you could think you know everything about a guy, but you can be incorrect. I mean, I, I've been very sure about guys, and I know guys that have been doing this for thirty years that are very sure about guys, and it just hasn't worked out. And you know, as far as you know, I think when you come in and when you first start doing it, people might say, "Well, you know, this is our job. We've been doing this for a long time, and we, we're not going to." pay attention to as much. I mean, I don't think people come out and say that, but I'm sure it gets looked at it like that at first. But I always say getting getting your foot in the door is not the hardest part, but it's, if you could show people and show those people or those hardcore baseball guys that have been doing this forever that are 60, 70 years old, if you could show them that you're the real deal and you take this very seriously and you're willing to be, you know, humble as far as, far as being wrong or anything like that, I think that's the I think that's the biggest problem the old guard has against maybe some of the stuff that's out there today on the internet about valuing prospects. A lot of people don't leave room for being wrong. There's a lot of hard conclusions being made. There's a lot of this guy will definitely get hurt. This guy will definitely do that. And that's what I try to tell people. A lot of times, even even people asking me questions in chats and whatnot, they'll they'll want a little more definitive answer. But I what I think is important. You have to give your conclusions. You have to give the details and information that you've gathered from from observing, but you need to leave room for being incorrect. It's not being wishy-washy, but you need to you need to account for that because look how often people and everybody are wrong about can't miss prospects. Right, and I know that uh, of course dollar sign in the muscle, which um, you, you feel free to correct me on this if I'm wrong, and and I might be, uh, but which sort of at least now is kind of like the uh, the Bible of scouting, or at least like the um, you know the oral history. Of scouting, at least up till like 1982 or whatever. Uh, right. I, uh, there's there's a quote uh, from that book. I forget to whom it's attributed, but the I, the, the quote was that I that uh, uh, scouts are wrong about 92% of the time or something like that. And uh, I don't know if that's accurate, but what would you put it at if you had to just uh, pull a number out of uh, you know whichever bodily orifice you'd care to? <laughs> well, I'd say you're definitely wrong, wrong more than being right. I, I mean, 92% seems high, but it could be accurate. I really, I mean, you look at a, you look at a lot of guys throughout the course of year, especially two years ago for me when I saw hundreds and hundreds of guys. I looked at guys from the Gulf Coast League to AAA, and obviously it's a lot. It's a lot easier. I mean, if we're talking about rookie ball guys or high school or amateur players, that percentage might be right. Once these guys get a little closer, I think it's a little easier to see what the finished product is. But I think for the lower level guys, that number could be accurate because. And you need to, as a scout, if you don't, if you aren't aware of those numbers, and you don't realize that as much as you like a guy, you could be completely wrong, then I don't think you're fully equipped to be a scout. And I think that's that's a big adjustment a lot of people have to make. You can't. You want to be conclusive, and you want to say, "Hey, look, I told you this guy was going to be a star," but you're going to look awfully stupid at the same time if you make those type of declarations. So you need to leave room in a scouting report, even if you write near the last lines. That you believe this guy is going to be just like player A at the next level. You need to leave room for saying, hey, if this works out and he projects to be this, he could end up being this. 
But at the other end of the spectrum, he can also pan out to be the t- to be something very different if these if these factors don't come into play. I mean, it sounds complex, but you have to leave you have to leave the door open for those types of best and worst case scenarios. One thing that that's endlessly uh, interesting to me is the idea of, uh, especially you know, with a scout with a working with an organization, is the idea that, that you're sort of mentioning right here of communicating to you know to the the cross checkers and and the scouting director and the GM um, your feelings about a certain player, right? And right. especially if you if you if there are a couple people who are kind of become your guy, right? And you say, oh, like I, you know, I put this guy in the fourth round, and maybe, may you know, or, or higher, you know, and and maybe that's not something that right away the the cross checkers or the scouting director sees. Um, I'm curious of this because, on the one hand, um, for me as an outsider looking at it, there seems to be the ability of the scout to evaluate talent. You know, you see a guy, and for whatever reason. Uh, when you know when you compare him to kind of the um, the catalog of all the other players you've seen, you think this guy could be a successful major leaguer. Uh, and then on the other hand, there seems to be a part where now that you have that information, it's your job to relate that in a in a sort of uh, compelling manner, uh, you know, to the people who will ultimately be responsible for spending the money on that guy. And I'm curious. Yeah, I'm curious about the situation. I'm curious your experiences with it. You know. Um, where where you were trying to to make it clear to um, you know to your scouting director etc. Uh, well, you know what steps you would take beyond just being like oh he's really good. I mean what what sort of language do you have to use and and how do you make it clear how you feel about a player? Well, I would say it's more important in a scouting report to list your observations and say what you saw than than trying to get directly to the conclusion because in those observations and details. Your scouting director, who ultimately has to make a decision, might see something different than what you did, than what you're concluding from those observations. So I might say a guy has, you know, average fastball with, with plus movement and he's projectable, and it's ultimately his decision to say, well, this is the type of guy we want on board. Well, scout, that's that's not your call. You need to tell paint the best picture possible. That's really what it is. I mean, it's used all the time of painting a picture. They need envision exactly what you're seeing, what you saw, and why you liked this guy or why you didn't. And I mean, you, you, it's basically details, and you need to you get the long way to do these guys, directors, and higher ups need to be able to get these roles as quickly as they can. So you need to be concise, and you need to you really need to be descriptive. I think that's the best way I can describe it. You need to be able to say exactly what you're seeing. If you didn't like his arm action, well, why didn't you like it? What, what was worrying you about it? If he wasn't commanding his fastball, well, why do you think he was missing up in the zone? Everything that you can get in there in a in a compact paragraph in that in that final conclusion of a scouting report, you need to try to get in there. Uh, another book uh, besides uh, Diamond of the Sandlot, or sorry, um, uh, 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 Diamond uh, Diamond in the Rough, um, that I've that I've enjoyed is uh, Profit of the Sandlots, a, a book about uh, Tony Lucadello, the famous scout um, from. Uh, from the Philadelphia Phillies, I think he had uh, the Ohio area, and he, he signed Mike Schmidt, but he also signed like 50 other guys who became major leaguers. Right. Uh, and um, one thing that he would, uh, one thing that he would, I guess, distinguish between him uh, himself uh, and other scouts, or at least what he considered maybe the difference between successful scouts and less successful scouts, was that he thought successful scouts were were better at assessing the strengths of a certain player 
whereas he thought that unsuccessful scouts would would let a player's weaknesses get in the way. Um, we see this at, at, even at the major league level um, with analysis. Um, you know, uh, for example, the player like Adam Dunn. You know, uh, obviously, very conspicuously, he strikes out a lot, right? But if you were right. if you were to um, now he obviously has some defensive <laughs> problems too, but just with his offensive game he's clearly a productive player and that's because he hits he hits a lot of home runs and he walks a lot right and it, and this was a tension probably you know more like ten years ago than now but I'm curious as to as to how you feel about this um, I mean is is Luca Dell making a distinction that you don't necessarily consider a distinction is this something you've run across where a scout might focus more on on the negative qualities of a player and let those overwhelm what could actually be real high upside um, positives. I think it makes a lot of sense with that because I, I, you know, you just I think you see it a lot where you'll hear about a high school player, for example, and all you'll hear about is oh he's you know he's going to swing and miss too much or oh he doesn't have the plate discipline. I think you have to, especially with prospects, they're not finished product. They're not finished products yet. They're not polished, and that's why they're prospects and not major leaguers. So it's a lot. E- it's, I think it's a lot easier, and I don't want to say lazy, but I think it's easier to point out uh, a guy's weakness. I say, "Oh, he's going to swing this too much," and that's probably what would happen with a guy like Adam Dunn. But if you can evaluate, if you can evaluate those strengths, because obviously those strengths are not fully formed yet. You're going to see a kid with 17 years old with raw power. If you can decide that that's a strength and project that out, that's a lot more of a challenge than just making a quick conclusion about a weakness. And obviously, there's always going to be weaknesses. And what I see all the time is not necessarily just scouts, but also fans and anyone else who tries to, to, to break down a player. When they see weakness, they'll, a lot of times they'll dwell on that. And that'll start to overwhelm the, the positives about the player. You got to remember to take a player for what he is. You're very rarely going to get an Albert Pujols, Josh Hamilton perfect player. There's always going to be something there that you really don't like. And it's easy to get caught up in that, too. You might see a pitcher throw a bad game and see a lot of bad things about him, but you have to remember that there are also things in there that you like a lot. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Albert Pujols because uh, even though uh, obviously now he'd be a Nadoi, you know, first overall pick with what we know about him, uh, he was actually a 13th rounder. Uh, which I, yeah. and, and, you, and you hear stories about scouts. Uh, um, I think Fernando Arango, or if I'm saying that right, or Arange, uh, the uh, scout from the Rays, his story is told in uh, Jonah Carey's The Extra 2%. Uh, but, you know, there's also the story from the, the, the Red Sox uh, scout who saw him, and uh, even the guy who, who was technically the area scout from the St. Louis Cardinals, while he liked Pools, I don't think he had him even as a first-rounder. Um, so that's not only, is that a, um, I guess, does that illustrate, you know, the degree to which it's not an exact science, uh, but it could also, I guess, illustrate you know the the sort of varying degrees of um, uh, or the, the ways I guess the weaknesses can, can overwhelm, right? I mean, because what? No, yeah, no, yeah, go ahead. Right. That's in, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think the biggest thing it illustrates is considering the level that Poodles played at. I think I think it illustrates more than anything else the difficulty in evaluating a guy that isn't playing amongst his peers in terms of being equal in talent. You see, you see a guy, you see a hitter of that caliber, you see him in the Cape Cod League, or you see him in the Team USA trials, or any of the big showcases for, for high school players, you're going to see that. You're going to see that stand out. You're going to say, there's, there's 50 guys here, and this guy's, you know, driving the ball 
more consistently more than anyone here. When you see it at a lower level, like fools play that, you're not you're seeing it, you're seeing them stand out performance wise. But it's a lot harder to say is this going to work against better talent. And it, it goes to show you a lot of it has to do with that big exposure on the big stage. If you're a big you know big time college guy or or a high school kid that goes to all the showcases, exposure has a lot to do with it. Right, uh, and I want to say just weird. I, for some reason, I called uh, Karani's book "Diamond in the Rough" recently, and it's "Dollar Sign in the Muscle." That's exactly what I meant. Uh, but moving on, um, but still, still sort of on the same theme. I'm curious if there are guys. Um, now, you know, obviously, uh, most of our listeners will be familiar with with the term "the good face," right? Which is the sort of uh, oh yeah. Uh, I don't know about mystical quality, but a look that a guy could have who you just feel like as a baseball player. Um, now. Well, well, that sounds uh, a little bit absurd on its own right. My guess is also that, again, having sort of built up a, a catalog uh, of players in your in your mind and what major leaguers look like and how a, an amateur or you know or a lower minor leaguer might compare to that catalog of major leaguers that you've built up, I imagine that there are certain guys who, for whatever reason, really stick out. Um, and and they just sort of resonate with you and resonate with your experience as a talent evaluator. I'm curious, and, and, and if you could get to specific names, I would love to hear that. But I'm curious as, as, if this is something that that ever happened to you, that still happens to you, where you just see a guy and uh, something about him really resonates with that sort of catalog of, of major leaguers you've built up. Well, I, yeah, I, I definitely think there are guys that it, there are guys that I've seen that might take some time if I'm if I'm scouting a series for a week. By the end of the series, I might say, this guy really interests me. But there are also guys, I think like you're bringing up, that the first impression is, is near immediate. And I think that one has to do with tools. And, you know, obviously you see a guy like Josh Hamilton take batting practice, the, the impression is going to be immediate. But there are also guys that take those, that have really good tools and, or, or if they're a pitcher and have a really good arsenal, there are guys that have a presence. It goes back to, I, I don't believe in the good face, bad face thing. But I think probably how that got started was evaluating a guy's presence. I think that has a lot to do with, you know, maybe more maybe more of a facial expression than a face, you know. Right, right. right. But uh, but uh, yeah, I think you know a couple of years ago, when I one of one of my first scouting assignments of the year was going to Marlins spring training camp, minor league spring training camp, and Mike Mike Stanton was taking batting practice, and not only you know. I've seen guys take impressive batting practice, guys hit the ball 450 feet, but Stan's a guy that does it with such ease and did it with such consistency to every part of the field. And just the way he's carrying himself, he looks like a guy that you see not on the backfield in spring training, but a guy that you see, you know, at a, getting introduced at a major league all-star game. I think presence does have a lot to do with it. And I think those are the guys that just rock up the ladder kind of like he did with the big numbers. And I, I, sometimes they, the tools plus that presence make it an immediate type type instant reaction. Uh, yeah, as a sort of footnote to that, I'll say actually uh, this this spring I, I actually was at the um, Marlins facility there in Jupiter, Florida, uh, Roger Dean Stadium, and I happened to have the good fortune of going out to the minor league fields when Stan was out there uh, doing some rehab work, and it was actually uh, it was his last day before um, he went back uh, over with the major league club. And he hit a home run off of a, I think it was probably a Mets minor league pitcher. Um, that it, it, I guess it just left the bat at a velocity that I was not used to, and clearly, like even some of his his teammates were not. 
And I think, I mean, I don't know if that's striking, but when you, you know, you can sometimes see it with a pitcher. Like a pitcher may not appear to have great stuff, but sometimes the reaction of the batter can tell you something. I assume that, like, in this case, it was the reaction of the, uh, just the oohs and ahs. Uh, that that also I, how how much is actually does that does that inform your decisions if at all the reactions of the players whether it's a you know like a wow type thing or really swinging and missing even if the pitch didn't look that great uh, the degree to which uh, the interaction uh, might inform your your analysis of a player well I think that's a big part of it especially like you mentioned for the pitchers how the hitters react both not only just taking good swings bad swings but how they're reacting you know once they step out of a box do they look do they have an overmatched look? Because there's a lot you can tell about the presence of a hitter and and how he's handling the at bat. How how's he pacing the at bat? Is he able to step out and rethink the at bat? All things like that. And uh, but there are ways. You know, I th- I do agree with you that how a guy is looked at amongst his peers, amongst guys that are considered equal in level, equal in age, and supposedly equal in talent, how they react to each other. That's why you hear about all the time on MLB broadcasts and things like that, how players react to when they see special hitters take batting practice or power arms throw the ball. When a major leaguer can see a guy and be wowed, and these are, and we're talking about guys that have wow type talent themselves, I think you have to take notice of things like that. And how, how these guys compare and are judged by their peers does matter. One thing on this, this train of thought is, um, and, I, and, and actually it'd be a good time to start. Now I want to ask you, um, and in some cases seriously, in some cases jokingly, I guess about scouting terminology. Um, as sort of as someone who's interested in in uh, the sort of you know the the world of prospects, but doesn't necessarily have any anything like um, you know uh, real training in it. Uh, I'll you know I'll come across um, terms or, or phrases from B- uh, Baseball America or uh, you know just on uh, random uh, scouting websites. That uh, you know phrases that are unfamiliar, and uh, typically I found I'm able to get them uh, from context. But there still sort of seems to be nuances and a certain mystery to them uh, that I don't understand. And one of those terms, um, you know, that that you see quite frequently, um, even used at the major league level, is is deception, right? Uh, right. And, and that's sort of what we're talking about, you know, maybe being fooled or or you know matchups. Uh, Deception is a thing that you hear sometimes being able to work in the minor leagues, but not carrying over to the majors, uh, or in other cases it's able to work. I think of a player like Yusmero, or Yusmiro Petit, for example, who I believe came up with the Mets, but was also a Diamondback at one point. Um, right. And he was a player who had a lot of strikeouts in the minors and just uh, has had almost nothing like a major league career. Um, and he was a player who people said um, existed off deception. Uh, then again, you also hear the word deception used to describe uh, Tim Lincecum and his delivery. And obviously, he's had pretty good success. Right. I'm, I'm curious about the, the, the faces of deception, uh, which sounds like actually it should be like a like a time life book about um, <laughs> something. But uh, in this case, like, what are the different versions of deception, and, and, and when can deception work at the major league level, and, and when will it not? Well, I think I mean there are certain cases. I think uh, I think guys with less than stellar stuff can get by with deception, maybe working in a you know limited bullpen role. But I think it comes down to it. Yeah, you can have deception, but if you don't have at least the secondary pitches to go with that deception, you know you have to have something to. The reason deception is valuable is, is the hitters are picking you up late. You know, the hitters are looking at Tim Lincecum. They're not they're not seeing the ball immediately as it comes out of his glove. They're not picking it up till. 
so frankly, that it's too late for them to really make a judgment. The reason Lincecum can do it, he has those secondary pitches. So they need to think about the fastball. Need to think about the about the splitter. They need to think about the breaking ball. And they're all quality or plus pitches. If a guy is deceptive and he has a 88 mile an hour fastball and a fringy average breaking ball, well, it doesn't really matter that much if he's deceptive because they're not sitting on one particular pitch. They can see the pitch, read it, react. But the reason deception helps for a pitcher with good stuff is a hitter can't make that read and can't make that judgment too soon. And by the time he does read the pitch, it's going to be too late. Who are some pitchers uh, sort of on either end of that spectrum? Like players, pitchers who've survived uh, using a lot of deception or other, or maybe some other pitchers who have the stuff, but they, for whatever reason, it was just uh, very easy for, for major league batters to pick up. Well, I think a good example, a guy that people don't think of much as being deceptive, at least I don't think he gets credit for it. I look at a guy, aside from his bad start this year stuff-wise, Phil Hughes is a guy with a lot of deception. And people look at him, he, he's a guy who relies mostly, if you if you watch him pitch, he's got a good breaking ball that he doesn't locate a lot of times, but he mostly relies on his fastball. He's got a good fastball. He's, he's At least last year, he was throwing 93, 94, gets up to 95, but you wouldn't think that consistently throwing fastball after fastball, he'd produce so many swings and misses. But he's got a little bit of a short arm short arm action. He's tough to pick up until, until real late in his delivery, and you, know, you see a lot of swings and misses on fastballs that get a lot of play. So I think that those are the type of guys, guys that short arm. I'm trying to think of some others off the top of my head, but I'm guys like of, that. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but Keith Folk, he he would have a sort of a short arm delivery. Would he fall under that that category? That is a that's a that's a perfect one right there. Because guys aren't aren't used to they're used to the typical arm circle and guys coming full full circle around. They have the timing in their head how long that takes and when the ball and where the ball comes out. But you know Keith Folk is a perfect guy. Another guy that didn't. I, I don't think he even had the velocity Hughes has, but he produced swings and misses despite, in spite of that. And now, and now, what about a guy who, who for what you know, just has tons of stuff, but is just like uh, for whatever re- reason, re- really easy to read. Well, there, yeah, I would say there's. I, I'd say you know, if you look in the prospect world, there are a lot of guys like that, and those are guys that, despite their stuff, you're trying to figure out. How are they, how are these guys getting hit the way they are? He's, you look at a guy that's throwing 93 to 96 plus breaking ball, but yet he gets hit. And I think of a guy, obviously, this isn't a great example because probably not a lot of people know him yet, but it's a prospect in the Angels system. His name is Garrett Richards. He's a very good pitching prospect, but I saw him last year and like, and he's actually the example I'm using with when I say 93 to 96 plus breaking ball, good frame, ball comes out of his hand nice, but he doesn't seem to have a lot of deception. Hitters are reading him quick, coming out of his hand. Uh, granted, he did put up good numbers, good numbers last year, but he's the type of guy you expect to be putting up ridiculous, over-the-top numbers and cruising up the minor league ladder. But it just goes to show you, he doesn't have a ton of a ton of deception right now, and guys seem to be reading the ball well. And when he leaves the ball up, he gets hit like a guy who throws in the upper 80s. You know, it's interesting. Uh, in fact, I, I had the pleasure, and I, I, I do mean it's a pleasure, of seeing... Uh, Colorado's Franklin Morales pitch yesterday, and uh, Morales has crazy stuff. I think he was throwing his fastball like 93, 95, and he was throwing like this crazy back foot slider, and he had a, a, a sort of loopier curveball, but with pretty nice bite. And then I went and looked at his uh, even his recent minor league numbers, and he even yeah, I think as recently as like 2009, 
he had like he was averaging six strikeouts and six walks per nine. Um, and I don't know. I, I, mean, I don't know how intimately uh, you know what, what sort of knowledge you have of Franco Morales, but is that another type of guy who could fall under that category? That makes a lot of sense. I mean, Morales. I think you know if you look at his delivery, he's got he's probably against a left-handed hitter. The way he kind of comes out, swings from the side just a little bit, he'd be more deceptive for for a lefty. But at that same time, the delivery gives a right-handed hitter a real good look. So that I think that makes some sense. Where he has the stuff that would make you think his strikeout numbers and hit numbers would be off the charts, but they just aren't. I mean, obviously command is an issue for him too, but that's an example where you know he's not really deceiving a right-handed hitter as much as he could be. Right. Uh, now, just uh, maybe some other sort of uh, quick hits here with uh, scouting terms. Uh, one thing I see still on the uh, talking about pitchers is the word depth, and I usually hear it with regard to a curveball uh, or some manner of breaking pitch. What does depth mean? Well, essentially, I mean, there's, there's different ways we can we can grade a breaking ball. You know, we look for the tightness and the spin. You know, how late is it breaking, and what's the velocity like? Is it a, you know is it a big loopy curveball or is it a sharp one? The depth basically gives us an idea, you know, is this the type of pitch that's, uh, you know, nose to toes, or is it, uh, a little short breaking ball with, with, with a couple inches of action that's more of a, more, more of a tight slider, or are we looking at a breaking ball with downward action that's going to drop out of the zone? And essentially, you know, essentially it's how much that ball is breaking. Okay, so, so who, who would be an example of a, of a guy who throws a breaking ball with a lot of depth? Well, let's see. I mean, a couple of years ago, you know, we had, uh, you know, I look, I look way, way back in the time machine a little bit when, when Daryl Kyle was around. He had about as much depth on a curveball as you could, because you could ever find with 12 to 6 action. And, you know, I, I look at a guy today, Clayton Kershaw, when he really has his breaking ball going, I'm not sure there's one with, with more depth to it. But the, the depth is more important for me there, because you might have a guy with breaking ball with depth, but it's of the slower, Barry Zito, big nose to toes breaking ball variety, but you get a guy like Kershaw who has massive depth and break on that pitch, but he's also got some tightness and velocity to it. Okay, yeah. Now, um, now I also hear a word uh, also with regard to breaking balls, tilt, and and I can sort of imagine mm-hmm. this as sort of like a, I guess something that has both depth and, uh, in this case, I guess it'd be glove side uh, movement. Uh, I mean, is that the correct idea behind it? It is tilt a good thing. Yeah, definitely a good thing. And, uh, you know, another way to describe it, I mean, sometimes we'll say some stuff like, uh, two plane break or two plane action. Essentially, like you said, uh, north to south and east to west. If you can get both of that, typically if we're talking about a slider there, it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult for, uh, for a hitter to line up. And that's, that's a lot of times where you, where you'll see those dot and drop sliders where they'll, where they'll have a real angle to them going down and away from a right handed hitter if it's, uh, Assuming it's a right-handed pitcher, of course. And is that like a, is that like Carlos Marmol's slider? Is that a is that a two-plane break? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's Marmol, uh, Brad Lidge when he was at his best. Those type of sliders, those disappearing. You know, it's probably you know when when you have a slider with tilt like that and the depth and and the and you know these a lot of these guys with the good ones are throwing mid to upper eighties. It's close to the most unhittable pitch you can have. Right. Is it is that is that the same thing as a is that a wipeout slider? Yeah, that would be, that would probably be another good term. <laughs> okay, yeah, good. you hear that a lot, and uh, yeah, less less descriptive, but it adds up to the same thing. All right. Um, now, I think uh, with regard to batters here, one term I hear a lot, and it it sounds like something that that no one should have. Uh, it's a word I wouldn't want associated with me, and that's load. Mm-hmm. Lo- load right. doesn't sound like a good thing. Either it could be uh, because you're a fat person, 
or uh, <laughs> or you've just done something in your pants. But it seems like load uh, is more of a neutral term. It's more descriptive than that. What, what is load exactly? Well, load, you know, when you're talking about a hitter, you want to see, you know, a lot of times you'll see the uh, the slap hitters of the world and things like that. They're going to use their lower half a lot less and they're going to be more handsy. You know, that's another term right there, handsy, that we that the scouting world seems to have invented. And it's actually a good term, but that's another story. But, yeah, I mean, there are guys that, you know, are power hitters of the world. Like, a lot of them will go into a deep load. And, you know, you want to know just how's the timing of the load. And then after the load, you know, you have, you have the trigger, you know. The oh, yeah, trigger, guy. Right. Of course, yeah. Yeah, right, and... Yeah, you know, load and trigger, and a lot of a lot of it has to do with the timing a hitter has, and a lot of it has to do with how well he uses his lower half when he's hitting. And it's, you know, essentially, the load comes when the pit, you know when the pitcher is about to deliver the ball, and it, a lot of it's timing because some guys some guys really struggle with the timing of their load. And then if if you're you know if you load too soon, you have a tendency to maybe open up, pull off the ball, and you're losing your lower half. And a guy who has a good load and can stay in it and stay closed. No, it's going to be a guy that's going to drive the ball to the ballpark quite a So, so if if I could uh, try and paraphrase for the uh, for, for, you know for the layman here, uh, load is essentially the way a guy, like essentially the movement a guy would have as the pitcher maybe is is releasing or about to release the ball, and then as he starts as the batter starts his forward movement, right? So it's that kind of way of gearing up to to put a right, strike on the ball. Right. Right. Right, just before the release, or you know, depending on what kind of velocity you're dealing with, timing-wise. But yeah, before the ball, before the ball comes to him, that's that's what he would do. Now, I'd imagine a, a player like Albert Pujols, for example, who I mean, if you look at statistically, like he hardly ever strikes out, and yet he has a lot of power, right? And, and this is obviously mm-hmm. this is a good combination. Um, but but something would tell me about him, like he's whatever he's he's able to have uh, like a quality load um, without really. St- Sacrificing any, you know, any power, right, or any, any, uh, sorry, any like uh, contact ability. Um, are there are there guys who, who essentially like, you know, who are totally, uh, I, I mean, with a player like, is it like Adam Dunn, or or is a player who has a lot of, who is like a, you know, really gearing up for power but totally missing? Is he just a player who's not going to make the majors? Is that Brendan Caton? Well, I, I think a lot you'll see that, you know, if a guy has a, has a really exaggerated load, a lot of times you'll see, you know, collapse on his backside a little bit or strictly have an uppercut swing. A guy that's kind of an exception to that rule, he, he go, kind of goes into a deep load and dips the shoulder. You kind of hear people talk about it all the time when he's slumping. There's Mark Teixeira. You look at how much he, he kind of dips back there, and he, he really does have an uppercut swing, and that's kind of what you get when you go into a real deep load the way he does. But, again, there's always exceptions to the rule. And you look at Pujols, with the wide stance he has, he has such a good base that he's not going to, he's not going to tilt though, he's not going to tilt back, he's not going to collapse on that backside very often. So even the power he's able to produce from that, he's so level and so still with his, with his base, it's just, it's, it's remarkable, it really is. Right. Now, a player like Dustin Pedroia, who appears to be able to swing as hard as he wants, uh, and still make good contact. What is the sort of phenomenon that's occurring there? Is it just freakish hand-eye coordination? I think I think it's, it's probably the easiest way to describe it, but it's also probably the best way. I think uh, and that's kind of rule number one, so to speak, when you're scouting a guy. There is no, there's always any, if there's a rule out there about players and how to evaluate them, there's always an exception to that rule, and he's it because he does everything kind of. I don't want to say wrong, but he has a lot of red flags that. And a lot of people saw him as, as saw him as an amateur and put those red flags on him about 
oh, how's that going to translate with a, with a wood bat against, you know, major league pitching? And look where he is. There's always an exception and hand eye coordination and some guys are just, just can do things different ways and get away with it. Okay, last term, uh, levers. Uh, I hear this uh, with regard to uh, center fielders a lot, center field types. Uh, they have long levers. Um, levers are good? Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, especially center fielders, you want those long athletic types, long arms, long frame, long legs, you know. That's something, you know, you look for guys like that, especially coming out of high school. There's a lot you can work with. You, you know, you want you want guys, you know, long-legged guys especially, you know, you're looking at good runners for the, for the most part, at least, you know. You're looking at guys that make things look easier than most other players. And, you know, baseball didn't really used to be a sport totally about body type, but it, it's become that kind of like the other sports. And there are there are a lot of body type terms out there that, that are going to get used with these guys now. Okay, uh, last thing, I, and I want to say this has been great. It's uh, educational um, and entertaining all in one. It's entertainment. I think that would be the uh, genre uh, to file it under. Um, I want to ask you just about a couple players. And, and of course, you do the chats uh, weekly at Fangraphs, and, and I'm sure you get to these guys. But players that maybe you see or that you're grading higher, um, more highly, I should say, than than you know we've seen on the the Baseball America list or Keith Law's list or Kevin Goldstein's list. You know, maybe we might call them Frankie's guys. Uh, and and uh, I wonder if you might share a couple of these with us, and and why does he feel that way about them? Well, one I'll just throw in the beginning, and, and a lot of people have asked me about him is Manuelos with the Yankees. Uh, I, I still, I'm just, I still want to take credit for him because a couple of years ago, before people were talking about him the way he's gotten hyped this year, I saw him in Charleston. I saw him as a guy then when he was working at 90, 91, 92 as a guy who could be an outstanding number two type starter, purely from a pitchability standpoint and his ability to locate secondary pitches. People seem to classify him as a finesse lefty. Even at the time, I didn't quite understand that if you can get a lefty that's 90 to 92, I think you would take that any day of the week. But, you know, now that he's a guy that can touch 95, 96, all of a sudden we're seeing the attention he's getting. So that, you know, let that be a lesson for everyone out there about guys that, uh, you know, people shouldn't be too quick to classify a guy that's only 18, 19 years old. These guys aren't finished products. But, uh, yeah, he's a guy I've, I've always valued higher than I think most and, Luckily for me, he seems to be paying off a little bit for the risks and grading him. But uh, I think another guy is uh, he's starting to get more attention now. Jonathan Singleton in the Phillies system. He had a little, he had started out great last year, and then he kind of went into a little bit of a tailspin towards the end. But he's a guy. He's one of these guys that you know he's not. I'm not going to say he's like Stanton, but he's a guy that you see and are immediately impressed by. A guy's batting practice in the in the field and just physically, and he's he's a guy that could be a uh, he looks. The, I don't want to say he looks the part because that's that's an easy way out. But as far as the way he carries himself, the way he handles himself at the plate, and to go with those raw tools, he's a guy that I think is even now just still a little bit undervalued, even though people have been ranking him. Uh, so Jonathan Singleton, and uh, I mean, if if you were gonna, it, this this might be a dangerous game, and feel free to say so. But uh, in terms of uh, comps, is that um, I mean, what what sort of player is he? Just generally speaking. Well, I've heard Ryan Howard thrown around, and I, you know, I don't think that's quite fair. I, I, I do think that if you're looking, a lot of times I like to say, I don't like to use comparisons unless they really fit easily. Mm-hmm. But I will say, I will tell somebody, yeah, I, I think that's uh, 
I think that's a, that's a fair profile to give him. If you want to say he's a Ryan Howard profile, that he's a 30 home run type, left-handed swinging first baseman, or perhaps if he moves to the outfield, if you want to give him that profile, then yeah, he is he is similar to a Ryan Howard type. I don't see a real natural comparison. There isn't a guy that that he stands at the plate like that. That's when I'll give a real compar- you know when I give a guy a real comparison. I want it to be he looks like him physically. He handles himself in the box the same way. It has to be a real good one for me to throw out the actual comparisons. Right. Now, uh, Frankie, uh, you're excused if you, if you don't know about this, but uh, so uh, each uh, each year, at least the last two years, I've submitted a team uh, on the site, a, a team of players, a full roster that if I had my druthers um, would be the team that I would like to see uh, assembled, right? You know, they, of course, this is in a, in a play world, but it'd be the 31st team, essentially, in the major leagues. Okay. And, uh, it's called Team Joy Squad because there's a uh, there's sort of uh, these are all players whose uh, I guess potential or at least what I see as their potential is greater than the general um, I guess the public's perception of their talent, right? So last year, Colby Lewis, okay. for example, was the uh, was the captain of Team Joy Squad, um, and, you know, because he, he was coming from Japan. Not a lot of people okay. knew him, but he'd had he, he appeared to have uh, the numbers ready. Now the the players that are one and two um, this this year uh, on Team Joy Squad are uh, uh, Charlie Blackman, uh, outfielder in the Rocky system, and Chris Balcom Miller. Okay. Uh, Chris Balcom Miller, who I think is probably going to be a double A this year in the Red Sox system. So uh, I I'm going to give you uh, an opportunity to tell me either what a moron I am or to. Uh, um, hold hold your hand up in victory with me about the uh, assessment of these two players. No, I, I think uh, I think you're pretty, you're not far off there, and uh, obviously there's some risk involved in any time a guy's undervalued. But I, no, I think both guys have a chance to be pretty good. I think you're doing all right there. Yeah, because, uh, now the thing is with Blackman, I, I think he was slightly old for Double A last year. But if you look right. at just the numbers across across the board, like. He's got good contact rates, and he walks a little bit, and he's athletic. It, I'm curious, especially because he does have tools, why he's been undervalued. Do you, do you have a sort of proper answer for that? I, you know, I think a lot of times people do get caught up in age and what exactly a guy needs to be. You know, people have these expectations for, you know, a Gulf Coast League kid has to be 17 or 18 years old. I, I think that has a lot to do with it. And what I've always said is, obviously, you want a guy to be one of the youngest guys at his level or things like that, but... It, it plays a lot of times a little too much into the rankings, I think. And uh, you know, if a guy's never if a guy's never played a AAA or whatever, and he's 26, I, I think this especially goes for pitchers. But if he's doing what he's doing, and he's never played at that level, then you really need to then you really need to grade him a little more fairly, and not just not just on his age. And I think that probably has a lot to do with it in terms of his ranking. Just people have these expectations about exactly what age a guy should be at each level. Well, a, a sort of crazy example of that at this point is uh, in the Dodgers system, outfielder uh, from New Mexico, Brian Cavazos Galvez, mm-hmm, uh, a right. name which I'm probably saying poorly, but I mean, he was what? He was 24 at uh, maybe low or high A last year. Right. I mean, is yep. that a pitcher who's just too old? But he, again, he's toolsy and he makes contact. I'm curious what you think about a player like that. I think especially for pitchers, if you know, it it really doesn't matter. It ultimately, if you can do the job, obviously it matters more. It would be different if a guy is, you know, say he's an IA ball and he's you know struggled for three years in low A. That you know that's then you see a little bit of a red flag there. But if he doesn't have past experience at that level and he's a little older and there's other reasons that he's you know as old as he is, then you can't really hold it against him. 
Okay, you can't hold it against him, and uh, we won't hold it against you, um, Frank Pilieri, um, uh, for appearing on this. We still think you're a good a good guy, even though you appeared on Fangraphs Audio. <laughs> uh, hey, thanks so much for uh, for joining us. It was re- it was really uh, excellent. Uh, a lot of good insights here and a lot of fun. Um, so thank you very much, Frankie, for joining us. No problem. Glad to do it. Okay, he has been Frankie Pilieri. Uh, I am and will continue to be Carson Sestouli. And this has been another edition of Fangraphs Audio. Thank you.